There are divergent views on how scholars should operate in the development space. Some think scholarly researchers, particularly in the academic setting, should focus almost solely on publishing in reputable academic outlets, while some others think that researchers should collaborate and partner directly with development practitioners to share the results of research. Still others believe that scholarly researchers should be on the front lines themselves, conducting research, designing relevant programs and experiences, and then executing the programs. Not all scholarly researchers desire to straddle the academic-practitioner divide. However, many researchers thrive while straddling academics and practice, and even in some cases, take it a step further to engage in activism. But venturing into activism can be dangerous. Vocal researchers face condemnation in news media outlets, and in some cases face sanctioning by governments, particularly when activism calls for significant policy and government reform. What leads scholarly researchers to cross the academic-practitioner divide? How might this approach to research contribute to new paradigms in development? Today, in two parts, we take a look at the concept of the scholar-activist. Welcome to Inside Leaders of Africa, the Disruptive Dev podcast that goes inside research, creative expression, and international development. I'm Peter Pinar, the director of the Leaders of Africa Institute and your host. We critically survey the international development space, explore important questions about forging a more just world, and discuss what's happening at Leaders of Africa and the Institute to tell the story of a vision, a community, and a disruptive transformation. Part 1. The Scholar-Activist I first met Dr. Jalili Adebiyi, or Ghana as we call him, at Michigan State University when we were both pursuing a PhD in different fields. Ghana was in the Department of Community Sustainability, which explores sustainable international development, while I was in the Department of Political Science. Unlike many institutions, Michigan State University facilitates the coming together of scholars across disciplinary boundaries and community members interested in all things Africa. In particular, there is a running series called Eye on Africa. At an Eye on Africa presentation some years back, there was a guest speaker discussing natural resource management. There, I first met Ghana, an enthusiastic and talkative audience participant willing to challenge the speaker with examples from his experiences in Nigeria, Ghana's home country. There was an exceptional energy in his passionate comments and a clear embrace of a locally driven and consultative approach to sustainable development. And I would continue to meet Ghana at many other events and a friendship began. One of the things that Ghana was adamant about was contributing to the development of Nigeria through a self-described scholar-activist approach. Before we come to scholar-activism, let's back up a bit. Ghana has not had your typical educational journey. Ghana, welcome to the studio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your educational journey? The story of Holy Soul people is a troubled soul that is in search for meaning. I started off my career as an engineering student. I studied specifically mechanical engineering in one of the leading universities in Nigeria, the University of Lagos, as somebody from a significantly farming community. When I look around, I saw poverty all over the place, particularly among farming households. How you see that people that are producing food couldn't even feed themselves. So the thought there was that possibly they needed technology to address this problem. 
And that was how I started off my career. The whole idea was that if I can acquire the knowledge that makes me understand how I can improve technology to support farmers, we can enhance their productivity. While at the university, I had a significant exposure to people of different extraction. I had the opportunity of providing leadership at different level, at the departmental level, at the faculty level, then at the university level, even at the level of the National Association of Nigerian Students. And that gave me the opportunity of traveling far and wide across almost all the state of the Federation in Nigeria. In all of this, I came to realize that the solution was beyond technology, that there is a need for me to understand the social component of the process leading to the creation of poverty across different generations. I felt there was a need for me to understand this issue of how to do development differently. So I started challenging the education that I received in engineering because it wasn't providing any convincing explanation. In addition to disciplinary changes, you also sought a change in location. That is, you pursued educational opportunities abroad. Tell us about this decision to continue the journey outside of Nigeria. Yeah, that was exactly what happened. So that decision led me to live in Nigeria for Malaysia, where I studied a master's degree in human sciences in history and civilization. And the goal was to have conversation with thinkers Philosopher dead and alive. And I did have this conversation. It was a very extensive conversation. That gave me the opportunity to understand how people have done development in the past, the processes they went through, the challenges that they encountered, and how they overcome those challenges. In the course of all of this, I soon realized it's one thing to understand how they've done it in the past. It's another thing to understand the concept of doing development which my education in Malaysia did not provide for. So I made a decision to look for another education that would prepare me for a life as a development planner and as a doing development practitioner. And I also wanted to have more education in the areas of agriculture, where I started my career earlier on in life. Because I realized if we want to solve the problem of development in Africa, we need to uh, look at agriculture and how we can harness it to overcome the problem of development. And that was why I made the decision to come to the United States of America to do my master's program in sustainable agriculture and in community and regional planning. There was a need for me to acquire the multidisciplinary tools that enables me to work with communities. And that was why I came to Michigan State University because it gave me the opportunity to do multiple things that will make me better prepare as a scholar practitioner, well-equipped with the potential capability needed to elicit and spur disruptive development on the continent of Africa. And Michigan State University gave me that opportunity. It also gave me the opportunity to do concurrently three different doctoral specialization certification program in gender justice and environmental change in international development and taught in ecological food and farming systems. And when you look at the totality of all of this, it's what makes me as a scholar practitioner, it's what defines me as a scholar activist as well. And so you've used this term scholar activist in many settings. Also, you've alluded to some of your student activism at the University of Lagos and thereafter in Malaysia. And I'm curious to know, 
how do you understand, how do you interpret, how do you internalize that concept of scholar activism? I could recall when I was in Malaysia, many people were like, were you a student or an activist? Because I'm taking on the university today, or I'm taking on the leadership of the Nigerian High Commission the following day. My professor back in Malaysia said, Ghana, I think you should go to the United States. That is a place for somebody of scholar, practitioner, extraction like you. You know, because he could see that I'm not just an ordinary guy in the academia. I'm somebody with full commitment to fighting the cause of the oppressed in the society, to fighting the cause of the marginalized in the society, to fighting the cause of the racialized in the society. All of these define my construction of the concept of scholar activism. And what that means is this, somebody with a foot in the academia, with another foot fighting for the oppressed, for the marginalized. And what that means is that the research that I do, they are oriented to fighting the cause of the oppressed, to fighting the cause of advancing the public good for the greatest good of everybody. And the way I look at it is such that creating that environment that is enabling for everybody, creating a prosperity that is sustainable for people today, people of different extraction, people that are living life of hopelessness, moving them from the margin of hopelessness to the margin of thinking great and doing things great, to the margin of being part of those that receive around the decision-making table, making policies, creating programs that will drive development in the communities, that will shape the narrative of what development should look at globally. So just building on what you've mentioned, I want to explore a little bit more the relationship between scholarly academic publications and scholar activism. In your mind, what is the relationship between the two? I don't live in the academia for the sake of publication. Now, if I publish, the goal of that publication is to address development challenges is to address problem, is to bring the voices of the press, is to bring the voices of the marginalized to drive my research in order to produce knowledge that will inform policy that are responsive to the voices of the marginalized, to drive policy that are responsive to the concerns of people that are living in the presence of intergenerational poverty. It is serving, using scholarship to enthrone justice, Using scholarship to work to enthrone equity. Using scholarship to work for ensuring prosperity that works for everybody. Using scholarship to change how leadership is envisioned in the society by bringing the voices of people to leadership and leadership to the voices of people in a way that is not just about the privilege, it's about everybody having a say in how they are governed, having a say in who becomes your leadership, having a say in the processes of developing policy, having a say in the processes of implementing policy, and having a say in their life. It's all about all of this. And I've seen the potential in being a scholar to live the life of a scholar practitioner that will live and commit to the process of eliciting change that will advance the cause of the good of everybody. Now, in thinking about this concept of scholar activism, as you've just explained, what are some good inspirations that are out there when it comes to scholar activism or the scholar-practitioner approach? 
Are there good examples that you follow, that you look to, and that others should be thinking about when they're thinking about this model of scholar activism or scholar practitioner activism? There are many factors that fed into this construction of myself as a scholar activist. And part of that is my own bringing. You know, I, I grew up in a military environment and not just a military environment, an environment that actually values scholarship. We have always been told, you got to speak up no matter what. Even if it means you are going to be killed, you got to speak up, you got to say your mind. That was the kind of environment I grew up, you know, being prepared to take on the process of challenging whatever we feel is wrong in the society. Growing up, I read a lot of books. I met people through books. For example, I never had the opportunity of meeting Ali Mazuri in my life. Ali Mazuri is one such example of a scholar practitioner. He died in 2004. He was a Pan-African activist, and he was dedicated to using scholarship to address issues of inequality, to foster justice. He built on the influence of the likes of Kwame Nkrumah to scope out and level himself as a scholar activist. And he did it in a way that it wasn't just publishing in the academia for the privileged group in the academia, for the intellectuals. He lived a life of a public intellectual by engaging with communities, engaging in public conversation, him at addressing issues of injustices in the society. It's one of those people that actually influenced me. Another one is Edward Said. Edward Said is a scholar that I love so much. He died at the age of 67. One of the things I really love about Edward Said was the way he brought about disruptive thinking in the area of how people construct images of the order in order to create a negative, pejorative, organizing image of the order. And he disconstructed it in a way that he wasn't just talking to folks in the academia, he was also speaking to policymakers who were using you know, the knowledge created by some hawkish individual to further polarize the Israeli-Palestinian conversation. He was also looking at this issue in terms of how this culture of organization, the intellectual conduct behind organizing the order, feeds into our Africans are called the black people. And what that actually means in a very deep, intellectual, robust deconstruction of the concept so I liked a lot from the likes of Edward Said as well. There are those younger generations that I also considered as scholar activists. That I look at them and I said, these guys, they are doing something very similar to me. One of them is the late Pius Adesomi. He lived the life of a scholar practitioner, a public intellectual that uses his scholarship to speak to issues of injustices, issues of imbalances in our society, issues of how people have created an image of dispossessing Africans of the ownership of Africa and what Africa needs to do in order to repossess Africa and create a narrative, a development paradigm that is Africa true and true. So I've often heard Professor Jega mentioned as an example of a scholar activist. And for those of you who don't know, Professor Jega was the former chairman of INEC, that is the Independent National Election Commission of Nigeria. And he's often held up as a scholar practitioner, somebody who was firmly in the academic setting, but also played a fundamental role in the history of Nigeria 
in very practical, very applied ways. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Professor Jega, whether he fits into this category of a scholar practitioner. Before he became the vice chancellor of one of the leading universities in the country, he was at the time the leadership of the Academic Staff Union of Nigerian University. And these are radicals, intellectuals, activists within the university environment that are advancing for changes in the faces of education in the country. They were adequately funded in Nigeria because all of these beliefs are necessary in order for the country to overcome its many multi-visited development challenges. And when we had an election in the country, and the general Sonia Bashir was not going to leave his position as military of the state after depriving Chief Moshish Kashima Wabiola the opportunity to become the democratically elected president of the country. The lives of Professor Atairu Jaga looked at Bashir in the highs. They both fought Bashir without leading to their incarceration in one form or the other. They never yielded the floor, standing to look, you know, a tyrant in the highs, and they fought it. And the glory of the democracy that came about in Nigeria goes back to some of these scholar activists who were playing roles at scholars, faculty members in the university, but also with a significant public activism, societal engagement. So folks like this, they are part of the inspiration. For me, living a life of a scholar activist, and there are many, several of them, that are not of African extraction. Another part of the story is Ghana's contribution to institution making. In November 2017, I conceived of a research institute devoted to a new way of exploring research and personalized mentorship. The institute would emphasize rigorous research methods and creative expression while bringing together interested researchers and practitioners from across the African continent. It is something that I considered some time before the first call for applications went out in December 2018. As recruitment began, I considered sharing the opportunity with friends and colleagues. The first person I turned to was Ghana. In my assessment, Ghana appreciated outreach and capacity building as part of activism and the thankless job of creating a very special institute. I called Ghana for a meeting in my campus office. He immediately liked the idea, and we decided to co-teach the first research methods program sequence. Together, we took the leap and developed a bespoke curriculum for virtual instruction. More on the early days of virtual instruction in 2018 later. Ghana, I'm curious to hear your first impressions of the Institute back in 2018. So it's been a long journey, a journey in disruptive development. I could recall when we started we had a dream. And today, the dream is not only been lived, the dream is been realized. The dream was all about Africa and how we can play our role to contribute to the development of Africa in a different way. Because the traditional approach of supporting Africa to do development has always been some people sitting in one particular part of the global community that is not Africa dictating to folks in Africa what to do. Africa has not had that opportunity of advancing a development route, a development pathway that is truly home. But I could recall that we had that conversation about how can we change this narrative by creating an institute, by creating 
an organization from a pan-Africa-centric perspective works collegially, build that capacity within Africa to help LSE development of the continent by the people of the continent for the greatest group of our collective humanity. So that was a conversation. And I could understand that it was a journey that many people doubted. Particularly, I remember having this conversation with a couple of friends and they were like, where will you guys get the money to get it started? You can't just be running things without money that it's not going to work. You need the big donors in this world to fund this idea. And I said to them, this is one of the things we want to do differently. It's about disruptive thinking. It's about disruptive development that we want to tell people that Africans don't need to go back for support, don't need to go back for money before we can actually build the capacity to make the continent's narrative change from that which is depending on other to that which is self-sufficient and sustaining. And that was the whole conversation that fed into this. When we started in an apartment, it was very rough at the beginning, but we kept pushing, we kept going. Given all that you said, Ghana, how should we think about the impact of the Institute? We rolled out the first program, which was a massive program. It was a massive success because we could see the joy building the capacity of people who dreamt of a top-notch education, but who never had the money of traveling down to places like the United States. If you need to prepare people to lead the process of fostering development in Africa, they will tell you they have to acquire quality education outside of the continent, either in the United States of America or in some of these European countries. More than 99% of people who deserve access to this quality education, they're not able to travel out of the continent because there is not enough scholarship going along. There's not enough fellowship going around. And we thought of doing something differently. Offering education that serves the need of this particular population telling them that you can acquire the education that some people will pay about $200,000 to acquire, that some people will pay close to half a million dollars to acquire. You can acquire this education through the educational offerings and programs being provided by the leaders of Africa. It means that we need to build additional capacity that makes it possible to deliver this kind of education to this group of individuals who desire this education in order to live a fulfilled life and to become thought leader that will LSE the transformation so required on the continent of Africa. And that was the whole journey. And now when I look back, I say, yeah, we've been successful from that point of view because we have people that have acquired their PhD that comes through our program. We have folks that are working as policymakers we have folks that are working in different development spaces on the continent. Those that are working in the areas of engineering, those that are linguistics, those that are working in the banking and in the financial institution, those that are working in the medical institutions, those that are working as engineers, coming to acquire that top-notch capability. We've been able to create a model that is not money-driven, but that is change and disruptive thinking-driven. Our goal is to create a pool of disruptive thinker. Our goal is to create a pool of not just narrative changes, but people that make narrative that are truly pan-Africanist in nature. That's absolutely wonderful. And so lastly, 
What do you think are some of the contributions of the scholar-activist approach at the Institute? How does it play out in the context of the Institute you just described? When you look at some of these traditional institutions or organizations, for the kind of education that we are providing, the kind of capacity building that we are providing, people have to pay a lot of money for them to acquire this. But at the leaders of Africa, we are saying no, that education should be made available to everybody. Whether they have the financial resources or whether they don't have the financial resources. And it's not just ordinary education available to them. Top-notch education that people will break the bands to acquire. And that we are doing at the Leaders of Africa. It's also about the nature of the program that we are doing at the Leaders of Africa. Because one of the things with scholar practitioner is that it gives people the agency to own their narrative. Sometimes in the traditional academia setting, when you get into a program, if you don't have the money to do your own research, what is available for you is for you to do the research that is being funded through a grant. And what that means is that you may not be doing exactly what you want to do, what you feel is good for you, what you feel is good for your community, what you feel is good for your continent, what you feel is good for your country. But at the leaders of Africa, we are saying no. It's about exactly what you wanted to do. And we'll provide the necessary support. Go all the ways to making sure that what you feel is good for your continent, what you feel is good for our collective humanity, that exactly will provide that enabling environment, that agency for people to define what they want to become. We created that atmosphere, that ambience through the leaders of African Institute and the leaders of Africa. So that self-empowering agency is one of the things that the concept of scholar-practitioner has influenced in terms of how we do things at the leaders of Africa. It's not just about knowledge for self-education purposes. It's about knowledge for addressing issues of inequalities, injustices, imbalances, asymmetries in the society. And you see this in everything that we do. And part of that is because of the Scholar Activist Foundation of the Leaders of Africa and the Leaders of Africa Institute. Wonderful, Ghana. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Part two, scholarship in action. Researchers embracing the scholar activist approach often explore how research may have a lasting impact on institutional change. Let's talk about an institutional challenge in higher education. One of the things you notice about many higher education institutions is that new programs are being created. When students apply to established programs, they sometimes receive rejection letters only to find out they've been accepted to an alternative program, and in some cases, a new program. These students have to decide whether to accept the offer and enroll, defer, or try again. If a student enrolls, it is quite possible that the student could lack interest in their adopted program. It is common in many university settings and raises concerns about students' educational attainment. Dr. Eda Aki, a lecturer and now Vice Dean of Studies and Student Affairs at the University of Boya in Cameroon, and a Leaders of Africa Institute Research Methods Program Scholar is shedding light on these concerns in a way to encourage action at the University of Boya and beyond. Etta joins us from Boya, Cameroon. So Etta, I'm really excited about your research and I think it's really important research. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your research as well as the motivations 
for thinking about some of these issues in higher education, particularly how students are thinking about their degree program, as well as the broader question of how admissions committees should work. I think that overall, the purpose of training students, learners, is to enable them to contribute to societal development generally. And if they cannot contribute to national development or societal development, then it will mean that the purpose of training has been futile. It's not important. There is no way, in my opinion, that learners can fully contribute or participate if it is out of their interest. So that's my big thing about students' interest in learning. If it is out of their interest, then it's likely that they'll be very passive in participating in developmental processes and activities. I'm interested in finding out and exploring a phenomenon which is undesirable program choices. I want to see how this phenomenon actually affects students' decisions to persist in their study. I'm interested in university students to see how those who got selected into programs that they never applied for, what is it that motivates them to want to continue with their programs? And how is this also perceived by teachers, by administrators? And how is this also affecting the institution? And tell me, why is this research so important, given the time and merits of some sort of response? I think that it's very obvious now that our learners are the future of tomorrow. Whatever they are learning now, this is what they will become tomorrow. Not only for vocations, but even with their mindsets and their motivations. And I think that if we have to manage the future of tomorrow, then we must start it from now. And that is actually getting people what they want, at least to the best possible way. It's sometimes it's not always very easy to get people what they want, but we can do our best if we know what the barriers are and how it is affecting our learners when they don't get to end what they desire. So I think that's why it's important to understand this. Another thing is our university systems, our educational systems in general, always cry about poor performances of students and low motivation has always been linked to how students perform. So if we want to be able to improve on the performances of students, then it's important to equally understand how program choices are affecting their interest to learn. So building on what you've just said, Etta, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about some of the things that we should be thinking about to address some of these concerns that you've just raised and that your research looks at? I think that if there is proof as to how students' interests are shaping their experiences in the university and even shaping their outcome, then that becomes the basis for evidence for the admission board. So the admission board can use that to inform their own decision. And I think that it could also lead to the building of a program that will guide students themselves because it is not solely the responsibility of their mission, but also the students choosing their own programs of study themselves. So we could also design a program that will guide them, but we cannot know exactly how to manage these 
how to target this without having an understanding of what exactly prevents them from making the right choices or and effects are of the choices that they have made. So if we understand that, then of course we can design an intervention program to help them make the right choices or to guide them because the purpose is not to make the choices for the students, but to guide them to make informed choices right back at the secondary school level. Of course, we are now eight weeks into the research methods program. What are some things that the program has made you think about as a researcher and particularly as a scholar activist? I knew what ethical consideration was, but I didn't know that it forms the overall basis for research, starting from the research questions, the problem, and just everything about the research. I didn't make a conscious effort about including ethical considerations for my research. It has made me to question my own research a lot. One of the major worries I'm having about my research is one that has to do with ethical consideration because I'm thinking, okay, should I involve all the students in the data collection process and then sort out those who are undergoing program choice difficulties? So it has really made me to rethink. Before now, I think I would have just gone ahead and I would have been done with the study by now and then it would have been very passive. But thinking through ethical considerations has really improved the way I view research now. I think that that's a very big thing for me. I'm really hopeful that I can extend the research and impact emission policies. And to do that, it will require that I work with other institutions. And that means that I need to also develop collaborative skills, networking. And these are all the advantages that the program comes with for me. I'm really excited each time I have a talk with my professors. It's always a reflection as to where I want to take this research to. And I'm passionate about it. This is so wonderful. And we are just so happy to have you as part of the Institute family. Make sure to follow all of Etta's work at leadersofafrica.org. It seems like the acceptability of crossing academic and practitioner boundaries is growing. Scholarly researchers are viewing themselves as agents of disruptive change through hands-on activism. And that's all the time we have on Inside Leaders of Africa, the Disruptive Dev Podcast. Follow and subscribe to Inside Leaders of Africa in your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. There are also exciting opportunities coming up. The Leaders of Africa Institute just opened a new program on telling stories with data. It's the Data Plus Design for Development Masterclass. Be sure to check it out. And continue the conversation on Disruptive Dev in the Leaders of Africa Discord community. Keep bringing that disruptive change, and I'll see you next time.